Chris Brown and welcome to episode 9 of Radicals in Conversation in-house, the podcast series from Pluto Press produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. These are episodes that have been recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their in-house events programme, which features authors of some of the most exciting radical non-fiction being published today. This month's episode was recorded in May. David Broder came to Bookhouse to talk about his new book, Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, which was published by Pluto in March. David is a historian of the Italian far right and Europe editor for Jacobin. His writing has also appeared in The New Statesman, New York Times, Guardian, The Independent, New Left Review and Tribune. He's joined in conversation here by John Foote, Professor of Modern Italian History at the University of Bristol and author of Blood and Power, The Rise and Fall of Italian Fascism. Listeners will remember that we had David on the show back in September 2022. This was shortly after Giorgio Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia party won the Italian general election. Well, it's now several months on, and so David and John discuss how things have actually panned out for the new fascist government, both domestically and on the international stage. Mussolini's Grandchildren is available to buy online or in store from Bookhouse. Just head over to their website, bookhousebristol.com, for more information. So, without further ado, here are David Broder and John Foote on Radicals and Conversation in-house. Welcome, everybody. So, I'm John Foote. I'm uh, at Bristol University in the Italian department, and I published a book on Italian fascism last year, which is called Blood and Power, that we presented here, which was a nice event. And I'm delighted to be here to um, talk about David Broder's new book, Mussolini's Children, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, published by Pluto, which is an excellent read, really fascinating and incredibly topical as well, which is something we'll talk about today. Overall, it's the study of the far right in Italy, which is currently in power, which makes it very topical. Um, but it's also many other things. It's kind of an historical account. It's a political account. It's a cultural account. It talks about memory. It talks about the use of certain tropes around the past. Um, it talks about the international influence of Italian fascism. So it's, it's really multi-layered, but it's also very well written and a very nuanced, but also very clearly written uh, book. David is a journalist historian. He's written on the Italian resistance in Rome. And he also works for Jacobin uh, in various um, guises and also writes often for the Italian press and other press. Um, so we're going to have a kind of dialogue about the book and, um, and kind of we can try and go kind of chronologically through some of the discussions in the book. And I wanted to start off by asking David to, um, to talk about the kind of political party, which is at the kind of heart of his account of fascism in contemporary Italy, which is the Italian social movement, maybe start off there and tell us about the MSI as it's an, an Italian, where that party came from and what it said and why it existed in, in post-war Italy. Well, firstly, hi everyone, thanks for coming. So, Giorgia Melani, her party Fratelli d'Italia has in its logo, the logo of the MSI, which is a party founded in 1946. She often refers to it as the 70-year democratic tradition of the Italian right. Very clearly in many speeches and so on, refers back to this foundational moment of 1946 as the moment when the Italian right, as she says, embraced democratic politics. So of course, in the book, I talk about what the MSI really was and who founded it. And the MSI was a party founded by people who were not just former fascists or former regime officials, but rather regime officials who wanted to keep fascist politics going. So Giorgio Almirante, one of the main historic founders of the party in December 1946, uh, he'd been the chief of staff in the culture ministry in the uh, Salah Republic, so the, the most hardline, the final stage of Mussolini's rule, the most, in fact, Nazi collaborationist wing of fascism. Uh, and he referred to it as a party of fascists in a democracy. So often Melani might say, well, you know, why are you calling me fascist and so on? That all happened before I was born. That's just the period of the regime. The MSI was founded by people who said, 
fascism wasn't just the regime, wasn't just dictatorship, wasn't just anti-Semitism, but is a political culture that survived the military defeat. So if we look at the early leaders of the MSI, uh, there's people like Pino Romualdi. Uh, Pino Romualdi was the deputy leader of the fascist Republican Party in the Solar Republic, in the Nazi collaborationist regime during the German occupation. Romualdi actually claimed that he was the biological son of Mussolini, his like bastard son, and was one of the founding leaders of the MSI. Uh, the MSI did take part in elections. Uh, the post-war Italian constitution uh, banned the refoundation of the fascist party. Uh, in practice, that tended to be applied. The Shelba law of 1952, which put this into practice, really tended to be used to suppress violent conspiracies rather than fascist politics as such. So the MSI's leaders sort of openly referred to themselves as fascists, celebrated the tradition of Mussolini, but also right from the start kind of recognised it would be impossible to recreate the regime. So from their founding Congress in 1948, there was this famous uh, slogan by one of the leaders of the kind of more conservative wing of the party, Augusto de Masanich, which is, we will neither renege on the regime nor restore it. So we recognise its tradition as ours, but we also know politics has changed. We can't hope to go back to what was before. And it's actually very typical of the MSI tradition, this idea of fascism has to renew itself in order to survive. In particular, if we think from as early as 1951, the party that had fought alongside Nazi Germany against the Americans and British, in fact, didn't allow people to join who hadn't made that choice, uh, but then swung behind support for NATO, the idea that Italy should be a junior partner in the Western anti-communist alliance, and sought basically to launder their reputation as anti-communists, to reinvent fascism as something that could be part of the Western alliance, and that they could be, as they saw it over the years, something akin to like Pinochet in Chile, or the Greek colonels and this kind of thing, which of course was never successful. Part of the strength of the MSI is connected with its weakness, which is it never managed to become a party of national government in the 50 years following World War II. In 1960, uh, there was an attempt to form a Christian Democrat government with some MSI parliamentary support. It sparked general strikes in several cities, rioting, huge social upheaval, uh, and that pretty much scotched that experiment. So it was always a fourth or fifth largest party in post-war Italy, but never able to reach national government. Uh, Melani and people like her often referred to it as a kind of criminalised minority, that it was crushed, that it was repressed by the supposed anti-fascist or even communist hegemony in post-war Italy. Of course, part of the reason why the MSI was criminalised was because many of the militants, either in it or in its midst, were uh, carrying out terrorist attacks and attempting to overthrow Italian democracy. But I think the, the, the thing with the MSI and why it's in many ways a, an unusual party, in a, say in a European perspective, is on the one hand, post-war Italy had a constitution written by anti-fascist parties, which explicitly banned the recreation of uh, fascist parties. But Italy was actually also the only Western democracy that did have a fascist electoral party. Uh, one indeed, not only sort of far right in its ideas, but one that uh, directly drew on the personnel of the former regime. Thank you, David. I was actually in, I was uh, two weeks ago in Italy uh, and I went to visit for the first time and not as an enthusiast, but as an historian, um, a place called Predapio where Mussolini is buried. And right next to Mussolini is Romualdo, Romal, who you mentioned, who, who claimed to be the illegitimate son of Mussolini. He's right, and he's from Predapio as well, which I yes. didn't know. Yeah, it's, and it's, looks it's like a tiny, him. tiny town in, in, uh, in, in Romagna, in central Italy, which was basically built as an entirely new fascist town when Mussolini was, um, and we might come back to that as a kind of touch point for fascist nostalgia today. So the MSI, um, a key moment in your book, and I think in post-war Italy, is what happens in the 1990s. So the MSI never comes into government. It's there, it, it kind of fluctuates between five and 10, 13%. You know, it's an important force, but it's never really, it's in local government, but it's not in, in national government. And then the 1990s come along and everything 
changes. The MSI is the party that Georgia Maloney joins as a teenager, so we'll, we'll come back to her. But could you tell us about what happens in the 1990s to the MSI and to Italian politics and, and what kind of the outcomes there of that process? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so the book's called Mussolini's Grandchildren, so there's some idea of generational change, right? So, of course, there's a difference between Giorgio Maloney, who joins the MSI aged 15 in 1992, and then people who had literally been hierarchs, leaders of the fascist regime, who then had to adapt to democratic politics in the 40s. And indeed, even between Milani and the older generation, people like Ignazio La Russa, who's the leader of the Senate now, who lived through and participated in the political violence of the 1970s. So I think the moment when Milani gets involved in the MSI is a moment of enormous change in Italian politics generally. One is for kind of world historic big reasons. The other uh, side is more to do with the Italian right itself. So the big general reason is it's the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union, the self-dissolution of the Italian Communist Party, so the second biggest party in post-war Italy, the Communist Party, the historic rival uh, and object of the hatred of the MSI, you know, dissolved itself. And also the end of the Cold War is also this kind of like an end of history, end of ideologies moment. Also, of course, things like the creation of the European Union, uh, the steps already being made that would subordinate much of Italian economic policy to you know, international uh, institutions and so on. So in a sense, it's a moment of a declining social conflict, the end of big horizons of political change. I think that that matters to understanding Milani and the current moment. Yeah, that's also why we're not going to see a dictatorship, why we're not seeing like violent social strife at the moment. Uh, of course, there are indeed violent and deadly attacks on migrants by members of neo-fascist groups in contemporary Italy, uh, and lots of people die due to uh, repressive policies on migration. Uh, but even so, I think in general, we can say the level of social strife and violence is lower than in the post-war decades. Then the more kind of specifically Italian change is the beginning of the 1990s brings the so-called Bribesville, the corruption scandal that destroys the Christian Democrat and Socialist parties. So the Communists dissolved themselves you know, because the parties exploded by its contradictions with the fall of the Soviet Union and so on, uh, even if it wasn't a, a straightforwardly pro-Soviet party. Then the Christian Democrats and the Socialists, the other two big parties of post-war Italy, collapse in these, this enormous uh, corruption scandal. And ahead of the 1994 general elections, the MSI says, you know, we're the party, you know, we've never been in government. We've not taken part in this corrupt order. We're the party of ordinary people. All these parties of the resistance, you know, the parties that have taken part in the anti-fascist struggle, then written Italy's post-war constitution, dominated its post-war politics, they're all out of the way and the MSI is left standing standing strong. Ironically, as the only party from the post-war era to keep going. It also has a big help by another new actor in Italian politics, uh, paradoxically entering the political field because of the corruption scandal, which is Silvio Berlusconi. And of course, there's a famous speech in 2019 where Berlusconi boasts, uh, it was me who constitutionalised the fascists. It was me who legitimised the fascists. So these are his long-time coalition partners, uh, his in electoral coalitions with now, uh, he rather unkindly perhaps called them fascists without any neo or post uh, before the word. But yeah, so the 1994, in fact, even in 1993, even before he directly enters politics, Berlusconi said, I would vote for Gianfranco Fini, the leader of the MSI, rather than the Greens in the Rome mayoral election because the Greens are communists. You know, these people on the left, they claim to have changed their colours, but they're bound to totalitarianism, East Germany, all this. Whereas the MSI, well, really, they're just moderates, you know, honest people who've been shut up for too long. In fact, even before the MSI changed its name, as it did in 1995, to National Alliance, uh, before it started to call itself post-fascist, as it did under <laughs> Fini, uh, Berlusconi brought it into his government. So 
I find kind of annoying a lot of the current discussion of Meloni in the press often says, well, you know, people like me say this party is linked to fascism, but after all, she's not so bad. You know, we've had six months and, well, you know, she's not done anything crazy. But it's not a sudden breakthrough. They've not only just come to power. The MSI tradition, her party, have been on and off in government for 30 years. So it's not a sudden breakthrough or chaotic explosion and so on. It's the far right being welcomed into the sort of mainstream right-wing coalition for some 30 years now. Uh, part of that as well also has to do with the breakdown of the other kind of anti-fascist codes that used to affect even parts of right-wing politics in Italy. So the idea that, yes, it's good that anti-fascists won and fascists lost. Uh, instead, what we've had the last 30 years, including from Berlusconi personally, is this attempt to say both sides are equal, both sides had their crimes, but also honest people. So maybe rather than go with the anti-fascist Italian identity, why don't we just admit that totalitarianism in general is wrong, uh, but, you know, as, uh, as Donald Trump might have put it, there were good people on both sides too. So what we're seeing today with Milani is the realisation of a long-term agenda of the MSI, which is to destroy the political legacy of the Italian resistance, to turn Italy into a state where to be anti-fascist is as shameful or as dangerous as to be a fascist. Uh, I think we've actually seen a lot of um, demonization, even of the words anti-fascist uh, in the last few months. She never pronounces the word anti-fascist, does she? I think she, she has never said that term. She's used the term anti-fascist... In a to negative way. Yeah, to refer to a violence which attempts to repress right-wingers. Yeah. So let's come to Maloney. Um, so she joins the party in the 1990s, this MS, which is MSIAN. I just an, another anecdote. I was, I lived in Milan in the 90s, um, and in 94, when, when the Berlusconi was the first Berlusconi government was formed, and the first post-fascist, neo-fascist, whatever you want to call them, ministers were actually in government for the first time since 1945. You know, there was widespread outrage um, and a massive, on the 25th of April, which is Liberation Day, an absolutely enormous demonstration in Milan, which, which I went on, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And I find it interesting how that hasn't been reproduced with when Maloney became mm -hmm. prime minister. And so there was still a very strong feeling of this was wrong. And this, this was kind of, you know, this should not be happening uh, and a very strong, groundswell, but that is a long time ago now. So quite a lot of things have happened since 1994. So let's come to Maloney, Georgia Maloney. So I'd like you to ask you about, you know, what she believes in, where her ideology lies, because a lot of the book is in this very careful unpicking of what this far right is, you know, it's, and David does that very with a lot of nuance and, and, and with a lot of research into the various origins and some of it is modern, some of it is old, this kind of mixture of things. So I'd like you to talk a bit, could you talk a bit about who she is, where she comes from, what she believes in, what her party believes in, which is not the MSI, is a kind of splinter of the MSI and the National Alliance. So it's a kind of splinter of both of those, isn't it? Um, could you tell us a bit about her and what her ideology is? So one thing I talk about in the book, and which might sound kind of trivial or silly, is talking about Milani's own memoir, which is called I Am Georgia, uh, in which she talks about her love of Lord of the Rings. So Georgia Milani doesn't talk positively about Benito Mussolini. She doesn't say, oh, wasn't it great when he tried to expand Italy into Yugoslavia and Greece? to rebuild the Roman Empire by invading Libya and Ethiopia and all these things. And it's not like they're going to do that now. And the empire she does talk about is Numenor in the Lord of the Rings books. Uh, I'm reliably told in the Two Towers, I, I haven't studied this uh, material myself, but uh, she's very into it. She um, quotes this idea, which is like from Prince Faramir in it, which goes something like, and she said this lots of times, so it's something like, um, I don't admire the sword for its brightness or the arrows for how fast they fly through the sky, but rather the, the city they defend, the men of Numenor. So this idea like, I'm not for war and violence, I'm for like my people who are under attack. So I think that has two elements, one of which is that 
in the self-identity of the MSI as this party that is like repressed and crushed by anti-fascists after World War II. So there's, there are indeed many incidents of you know, members of this party being killed, uh, of course, as part of a much wider period of social violence, which they never really talk about. But the idea is basically, you know, in her, when she was, uh, sought the confidence of the parliament to become prime minister in October, she cited this case of this uh, boy called Sergio Ramelli, who was like an 18-year-old MSI activist, murdered in 1975. And so if you think that's, you know, only like 17 years before she joined the party. So what she has kind of inherited, grown up with, is the idea, we are silenced and crushed by this basically communist establishment who run like TV and the universities and so on. Uh, and I think actually she's much more obsessed with that period than with like the regime era itself, which she has said some positive things about, has made some very relativistic comments about the fascist regime era. But I think it's also kind of like not what she wants to talk about or identify herself with. You know, what she's trying to do is basically to fully legitimise her part of the political spectrum, uh, her tradition, her community, including post-war neo-fascists like Giorgio Almirante, and say, well, you know, if the left get to have their part as communists, you know, why is it so shameful that we have fascists in our tradition? She wants to be a conservative. She calls herself a national conservative. That, of course, has certainly for long periods, including of her leadership of Fratelli d'Italia, included embracing things like great replacement theory, conspiracy theories about usurers and speculators and so on, who want to replace the white Italian population with Muslims and Africans and so on. But I think ultimately Fratelli d'Italia has to be seen as the end point of a successful endeavour to culturally legitimise the MSI tradition and to remove the kind of barriers that would once have kept it from national government that would once have kept in some sort of position of uh, suffering the hegemony of, of anti-fascism. Giorgia Milani joined the MSI in 1992. Uh, at the end of the 1990s, she became a councillor in Rome and then the leader of the youth wing of the National Alliance, Fini's post-fascist party in 2004. And then she became youth minister in 2008. Fini is an interesting figure. Gianfranco Fini, who turned the MSI into National Alliance in 1995. I think, if I'm maybe a, a bit uh, provocative and maybe it's a bit silly, uh, Gianfranco Fini appears somehow as the Tony Blair of the Italian neo-fascist tradition. He changes the constitution of the party. He says it's not what it used to be for. Uh, he actually goes ahead with all this stuff of saying, like, some anti-fascist values, yes, are ours. He tries to lead his party to really fully reject its former identity. It must be said with very many contradictions and weasel words, as I show in the book, and ultimately leads it into a merger with Berlusconi's party, which happens in 2009. Looking back at that history, it has to be wondered, and if you read Feeney's memoir, he talks about this himself, it has to be wondered how many of his party colleagues really believed what he was saying and did it for more than kind of tactical or marketing reasons. It's interesting, as, as the account of the former leader of the party, he basically writes, you know, most of our members thought that this was a facade. There's actually also some polling of party members by a political scientist, Piero Ignazzi, which basically shows this is the majority opinion among the membership. Uh, Fratelli d'Italia was founded in 2012, was a split from the joint party that had been created with Berlusconi. There's always been this kind of post particularly post-1990s, uh, uh, there's always been this kind of idea like, why don't we create something like an Italian version of the Republican Party of the US? Like a general container for all right-wing politics. Arguably, the kind of right-wing electoral coalition that exists is already a bit like this, but there's the idea of founding a single party, and it was realised between 2009 and 2012. The final Berlusconi government, however, was brought down or collapsed uh, during the sovereign debt crisis, and then Berlusconi actually supported the technocratic government that followed, led by Mario Monti. So then parts of the United Party broke away to form Fratelli d'Italia. Almost all of its leaders are former MSI leaders, even now. So even though the MSI dissolved in 1995, almost all of its leaders come specifically from the MSI neo-fascist tradition. But 
they have a kind of weird relationship with what Fini did. In fact, the Fratelli d'Italia now is, and Meloni specifically, they're much less likely to apologize for the past or say, for example, they don't say, we used to be neo-fascists, but now we're anti-fascists. What they say is, that's all in the past, nothing to do with us. So we think Feeney was someone who'd been around in the MSI during the 60s and starting in the early 70s, uh, someone who'd lived through the years of lead, the kind of most violent phase of post-war Italian politics. Uh, he tried to break with the party tradition and create something new instead. But Fratelli d'Italia says, we are the continuation of the MSI. In fact, there are many uh, statements by Milani, particularly uh, if we think in the early 2010s. In the 2013 general election, the first time Fratelli d'Italia stood, they got under 2% of the vote. But even in the 2018 general election, Fratelli d'Italia got 4%. So they're also competing with very small and further right, more explicitly fascist groups. Uh, and so to, for this reason too, we often find Milani saying things that, for example, Fini destroyed the Italian right, uh, that he was um, a plaything of Freemasons, of high finance, and so on. So actually the conspiracy theory is also directed against him. So I think Fratelli d'Italia as a party does want to claim the MSI tradition as its own, but also to be a, a more general right-wing party. Uh, and that's also been able to take advantage of the decline of Silvio Berlusconi and also of the decline of the, the previous rising star on the right of Italian politics, which is Matteo Salvini and the Lega. So Roger Griffin, a historian of uh, fascism, has this like interesting article where he says that basically what they're doing is they're hybridizing, like as one might with plants. So it's like they have kept part of the neo-fascist tradition, but they're also combining it with other things, and that produces a new mix. And so we see that with things like great replacement theory, which on the one hand carries an ethnic idea of political action. You know, we need to defend us whites against the Marxist and speculator organized invasion of immigrants. Uh, but at the same time, that actually isn't an idea from a specifically fascist tradition. And so that kind of um, politics can also be a sort of glue or a, a space where a party like Milani's can also find allies in like the MAGA wing of the Republicans, in things like Orban's party in Hungary, uh, the Polish government, law and justice, uh, this kind of thing. So I think that uh, what she has in fact succeeded in doing is to take a very minoritarian political community, as she would call it, something very nostalgically linked to the MSI, but then actually to make it into a quite normal part of the right-wing uh, space internationally. Maloney is also interesting, I think, because she's first woman prime minister. She's very carefully cultivated this image of herself as mother, as uh, working class, and, and that book is very important in that, the sort of um, self-image she's promoted, which has been quite successful in kind of separating herself out from ideology as well mm -hmm. as a kind of political figure. It's true that Maloney really rarely talks about fascism, really, very rarely talks about Mussolini, and only when she's really pressed. In the whole election campaign, last year, she didn't mention it. The only time she mentioned it was a little film she made for the foreign press in English, where she said two things were bad about fascism. One, it destroyed democracy, and two, with the anti-Semitic laws, and that's it. And she never mentioned it again. And she just avoided the subject. But what David shows, and what he's done also in his journalism, is if you scratch the surface of this party a bit, and you go down a little another level, you find all kinds of nostalgia, or whatever you want to call it, for Italian fascism, lots of people with Mussolini statues and who uh, go black shirts and all kinds of stuff. And it's not very difficult to find that stuff still going on. It's not there right at the top, but it's pretty near the top, but it's not Maloney. And she's managed to separate herself out. Um, so I wanted to come to the politics of today and this kind of election result of last year. So last year, Maloney won the election, is prime minister of Italy. And that was a, you know, historic moment because although, as you said, there have been post-fascist, neo-fascist ministers, never the prime minister. So could you say something about why she won the election and what the politics of this government has been so far uh, and what that means? Because I think they're almost certainly being power for five years. And they've got a very strong, there's no reason why they won't be unless something very dramatic happens. So perhaps you could say something about that and how that might pan out. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that 
three things. One is that the Italian party system in general is extremely volatile. Of course, in Britain, obviously, Labour and Tories, you know, we could say that things like Brexit and so on have shaken up their electoral base, but they each have a kind of hard core of voters who would stick with them. I think that that's much less true in Italy now. And you know, even compared to, of course, and indeed particularly compared to, you know, in the past, you had Christian Democrats and communists and socialists and MSI uh, over the post-war elections. Uh, the variation was very slow in their bases. From election to a next, we see very few like dramatic rises and falls. Whereas from the 1990s, uh, that's changed totally. In fact, in the last three general elections, more than two thirds of MPs have lost their seats on each of those occasions. I don't mean overall, but rather each time. So the volatility is very extreme. If we look at where the Melani's votes come from, they're basically about half of them are switches from the Lega, some from Forza Italia, some from Five Star, but really it's more a recomposition of the existing right-wing electorate. And in fact, the actual vote achieved by Fratelli d'Italia is not that impressive historically. So it rose from, it got 4% in 2018, 26% in 2022, big rise, no? Yet, Maloney got 7 million votes, and the right-wing coalition as a whole, 12 million. That same coalition got uh, 20 million votes only 15 years ago. So a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's just that the left's electoral base, or passes for the left, has collapsed quicker. And, you know, we see, like, very fast uh, falling electoral turnout and so on. But... I think there's, I said there'd be three things, but actually there'll be more or possibly less. Depends what answers one thing. <laughs> so there are other elements. One is that uh, the right-wing party's electorates are very permeable. So someone voting for Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia, Salvini's party, the Lega, or Fratelli d'Italia, in lots of elections, in re- you know, they're always allied. They've been more or less permanently allied, with some exceptions, for 30 years. In regional elections, local elections those voters have got used to voting for each other. There's not like the person who'd vote for Berlusconi, but would be like, oh yeah, Maloney, she's a bit of a fascist, won't vote for her. I think maybe that exists a little, but not too much. And of course, if we think that up till the election last September, the other right-wing parties were in Mario Draghi's grand coalition. So before this government was formed, Maloney often said, well, it's been more than 10 years since Italy had a democratically chosen government, which is a bit of an exaggeration. And of course, the Italian system doesn't like elect the prime minister as uh, she might hope now to introduce, or even to the extent that that kind of exists in Britain a bit. But, you know, in the draggy government, all of the other main parties in parliament were in coalition together. Democrats, Five Star, Forza Italia, Lega. It was quite easy for Milani, on the one hand, to be the only opposition party, the only force that isn't in this weird coalition that no one voted for, to represent the whole opposition. Yet at the same time, to strike this picture of, well, I'm not this extremist, I'm not this uh, radical, you know, I'll uh, criticise the government when it gets things wrong, but I'll try and be constructive. And if we look at their messaging, we see at the same time, a kind of cozying up to Novaxers or sort of vaguely gesturing towards them, but without quite copying what they said. So, for example, we now have this commission of inquiry into what happened with COVID, which really kind of like plays to the idea, like we need to find out what happened, but which doesn't obviously explicitly endorse like Novax conspiracy theories. So I think she benefited a lot from on the one hand, being able to sort of cozy up to that part of the electorate, but also being the big, you know, we're just like the British Tories, we support NATO, we wouldn't leave the EU, we support Ukraine. And this kind of international search for allies, I think, has been very useful to her. Uh, I think the fact of her age and the fact that she didn't participate, you know, if we think of the president of the Senate now, Ignacio Larusa, uh, was someone who was uh, you know, politically active in the 60s and 70s and has a much more kind of fascist, nostalgic image. So we even see a certain kind of right-wing commentator in Italy, not from the fascist tradition, promote this kind of idea that Milani is kind of somehow unfortunate to be surrounded 
by all these people who keep saying racist and fascist things. But actually, maybe she herself, like her brother-in-law, who's also a minister in her government, you know, she's much more reasonable. She's much more of an ordinary person. Uh, like the thing you said, this idea that she's from a working-class background, from a working-class district of Rome. by her father. Yeah. But, I mean, of course, apart from the fact that she's... Uh, one could question that description of the class background of the daughter of, like, a, a salesman, uh, commercialista. So, uh, and indeed the fact that she's been, like, a career politician since age 21. Like, she often says she was a journalist, but the only publication she ever worked for was the MSI's own party newspaper. <laughs> uh, and many of the people in her government have a similar profile of, of people who've been full-time political activists their whole lives, which, you know, is perfectly fine, except for the lie that they're sort of somehow, you know, she's always saying this kind of stuff like, um, I don't want to be in politics forever. I just want to have an ordinary family life with my daughter. Uh, but, you know, she is a career politician and a political animal. It reminds us a little, of course, of Silvio Berlusconi saying, like, he never wanted to go into politics, uh, which he said after his eighth a general election campaign. <laughs> He's sacrificing for us. You know, yeah. For us. <laughs> and of course, I mean, part of the, it must be said, part of the contemporary uh, Italian political dynamic is that while Berlusconi himself used to be subject to many of the same kind of accusations as Maloney is of radicalising the right, of destroying sort of anti-fascist uh, legacy of the Italian Republic, now quite a lot of people in the kind of centrist Italian politics actually look quite kindly on Berlusconi as someone who could potentially like save us from these very forces that he's brought into uh, politics. It has a certain parallel with the way in which the reputation of George W. Bush has improved very considerably uh, during the Trump era among say, sort of liberal or soft right kind of uh, forces. On the last um, part, I just want to talk about what actual what their policies are and what they're going to do in government. Um, of course, they're very constrained by economic crisis, uh, EU, and there's a lot of constraints on them. Um, but perhaps we could pick out some things and then perhaps we'd have a little bit on memory as well, because that's yeah, a big part yeah, of the book. So it seems to me there's a whole kind of cultural stuff that they're very, very interested in anti-abortion, uh, anti-gay, and then economically I'd be interested to hear what you have to say on, on their economy. Are they free marketeers? Are they not free marketeers? And then there's the whole kind of immigration stuff. The last, um, Maloney kind of crushed her sort of rival on the far right, Salvini, who was riding high on 40%, and that's why we never know in Italian politics. But he, last time when he was home interior minister, he kind of tried to stop the stop the boats, has now become an international slogan, but it was an Italian slogan first, I would say. He actually literally stopped refugees being landing in Italian ports, and that was, he led to a number of court cases. Maloney has done something slightly different there, so maybe you could talk about that. So those seem to be big areas of policy, but there may be other ones. So yeah. maybe you could talk about that for the actual concrete, what they're going to do. Yeah, so, I mean, so one thing I, I've seen a lot of is kind of like directed against people like uh, me is kind of like, well, you said all this stuff about the fascist roots, but hey, after all, they haven't been so bad. They haven't really done anything. But I think that really we should operate a kind of division between areas of policy where they could ever realistically have done anything and those where, which are kind of assumed to be fairly fixed, things they can't do. In fact, I'm often accused of kind of alarmism about this party. And I think I'm not saying that at all, actually. I'm not saying, you know, they're going to return to the regime. I think they often actually, it's useful for a party like Fratelli d'Italia to claim, oh, well, you say we're, we're doing this crazy return to the past, but actually we're so normal. I think it's useful for their propaganda for them to be able to say that. Um, I think there was actually more alarmism about the Italian right in 2018 than in the 2022 election. Part of the reason is that there was a, a misconception in 2018 that the Lega and Salvini, when he was on the rise, were likely to either deliberately or by accident push Italy out of the euro, or at least into some sort of debt crisis, which would have affected the whole continent. I think that view already then exaggerated the willingness of that party to seek such a conflict. Uh, but also, of course, it had to do with the fact that Lega's breakthrough happened soon after Trump had won and while Trump was president, 
after the Brexit vote had happened and before Brexit was realised, also when like Bolsonaro uh, won and so on, and when in general the EU seemed to be in a much more perilous position. So I think probably it can also be said that we're seeing a slightly different Fratelli d'Italia government than we would have if it had happened when Trump was president, or indeed if Trump does become president uh, again in 2024, which of course can't be uh, ruled out uh, entirely. So I think in terms of things like Italy's position in the euro and even its acceptance of like limits on deficit spending and so on, uh, Fratelli d'Italia is extremely unambitious. It doesn't want to change that or cause conflict over that. On foreign policy and in particular on Ukraine, it wants Italy to be seen as a staunch US ally. There was a business summit called Chernobyl last August, soon before the election. And Salvini at it said, well, you know, maybe the sanctions against Russia are good, but we can't do it forever because it's hurting Italian business, Italian households. And Meloni replied to him on the stage saying, no, for Italy's international credibility, we have to support the sanctions. I think really she means for her party's credibility, for her government's credibility, she has to do that. Uh, I think Fratelli d'Italia probably was less connected to Putin's party than the Lega were like six or seven years ago. Uh, you know, the Lega actually made a formal alliance with United Russia, the, most, uh, the biggest pro-Putin party. But I think it costs Fratelli d'Italia very little to support Ukraine and actually Italy's military contribution also is distinctly unimpressive, actually. It's much less than countries like Norway, uh, Sweden, uh, comparable to, say, Czech Republic. So I think there's a lot more image and symbolism of that than any... So it's not a big uh, political change due to her government. Uh, I think the government's agenda so far has been much more focused on internal culture war and identity politics. We have had ministers, or at least one minister in the current government openly promote great replacement theory, the claim of an ethnic substitution of Italians. Lolo Brigida, who's her brother-in-law, there were some calls for his resignation. It was very unlikely that Meloni would sack her brother-in-law for using a phrase which she has herself used literally dozens of times. And in fact, she endorsed the message of what he said the same day, and this was like two weeks ago, right? Which is, uh, we shouldn't import immigrants, Italian women should have more children. Uh, this is the focus of everything they're doing. Uh, it also, of course, isn't just about falling population numbers and so on. It's also about who should be having children and what a family is. So, of course, one of the things the government has also done is to de-recognise uh, same-sex parents. So often this is discussed as an issue of surrogacy and indeed paid-for surrogacy. Italians, couples paying foreign surrogate mothers to have children and then bring them to Italy. Again, I said there's a certain distinction between the international and then the internal national plane. This is also sort of reflected in a communications difference where Milani plays the stateswoman and her ministers make outrageous and provocative statements. So, for example, when the surrogacy uh, so-called debate reached its height about a month ago, we had uh, Fabio uh, Rampelli, who's really like her political mentor from the MSI section at Colleopio in uh, Rome in the 1990s. And he said that if there are children in Italy registered as the children of same-sex couples, that must be because gays are pushing, using the language of drug dealing, they're pushing foreign-born kids as their own Italian children. So there was the decree, uh, which was in form and directed against the Milan City Council, but which has national application, which is to deregister same-sex parents. Of course, it actually isn't just about surrogates, but also about, uh, for example, uh, lesbian couples who have children through IVF. So you have a lot of children in limbo now. Yeah, for sure. And it affects things like welfare rights, uh, places in kindergartens and so on, inheritance, all sorts. On the economic issue, I'd like to also connect it to, to what I just said. So Lolo Brigida, the brother-in-law of Milani, is the agriculture minister. He made a speech just before the one where he talked about so basically he said, like, we need policies that incentivize Italians to work so that they have a better future, so they have children. Only a few days before, he'd said that um, the problem in Italy is that lots of unemployed people think they don't need to work because we can import, uh, use the language, we can import slaves to do farm work instead. So one of the most uh, important, indeed radical things the government has done so far 
is to abandon, abolish the uh, so-called citizens' income, uh, like a, a support for low-wage and unemployed people. Often it's misrepresented as a universal benefit. Uh, in fact, it's a bit more like something like job seekers allowance in Britain. It actually already is conditional uh, and pays a very low uh, rate of uh, benefits. Uh, during the pandemic in particular, some millions of people depended on this and today about a million families rely on this uh, benefit. Uh, she's replacing it with uh, a system which, although yet to be defined, uh, will basically radically cut the amount of benefits and also reduce it to families who have uh, pensioner or disabled members. Other unemployed people in general will have no automatic right to benefits and in fact will uh, have to attend training courses to get a benefit of 350 euros a month for up to three months. And also they have to take the first job they're given, no matter where it is, uh, in fact, anywhere on the national territory of Italy. So they're radically cutting benefits and they're doing so uh, also using kind of cultural language, like, you know, you can't stay on the sofa, you can't laze around, people need to be more hardworking and so on. So there's this kind of myth of the post-war MSI, which had a party with many different factions and so on, that this is, uh, and in the name of the MSI, MSI, social is the S. So it refers to the Social Republic, which is the Salah Republic, the Nazi collaborationist regime. Uh, but also, of course, it sounds like social. So there's this idea, which is that we've always been the party, we've always been the part of the right that wasn't just free marketeer and and so on, but close to the poor, on the side of the workers, even like something in between capitalism and communism, or rather better than both. Uh, but actually what we see with Milani, I think her generation, you know, she's grown up politically in a party that was subordinate to Berlusconi uh, for many years. She is openly Reaganite. Her economic ideas are free marketeer, bootstraps ideology, uh, social Darwinist, uh, in fact, which see no role for the state as kind of welfareist. I think the language of welfare chauvinism, like welfare, but only for whites and families and so on, only captures a small part of the truth in the sense that her party is not welfareist. What it proposes is tax cuts for large families. And this is one thing they're really pushing now. So, for example, a thing they talk about is um, Italy has a lot of brain drain, a lot of skilled uh, graduates and so on moving abroad. But we're going to entice them back by giving, in fact, total tax exemption to families with more than three children. So they have the kind of obsession with these kind of pro-natalist policies and so on. So it seems to me that in its um, economic policy, it's actually a, a quite classically right-wing uh, agenda and one which actually puts it out of touch, even to the degree that, for example, a leader like, say, Boris Johnson proposed some sort of state interventionist measures. Uh, I think the thing we see with uh, Fratelli d'Italia is they're basically a party of tax cuts uh, and indeed even of tax evasion. And that's who they uh, stand for in Italian society. You know, they view Italy as a country of small businesses and that's whose side they're, they basically are. Uh, on the immigration question, I mean, I, I think the comparison with Salvini is interesting in the sense that actually under the current government and when uh, Salvini was interior minister, the number of immigrants arriving in Italy actually increased quite a lot. But what we saw was specific targeting of migrant boats uh, and of the NGOs doing migrant rescue. So the current Italian government, you know, Meloni's government, has firstly uh, announced that it's going to remove the special protection, which allows asylum seekers to remain in Italy while their claim is being processed. Uh, she has falsely claimed that this only exists in Italy, which is entirely untrue. It exists in most EU countries. And also there's been these uh, measures which mainly make it harder for NGOs to do their work for migrant rescue to happen. So migrant rescue boats aren't allowed to like float around carrying out multiple rescues and so on. Uh, and then there's a whole kind of rhetoric about how they're kind of funded by George Soros, communist, all this kind of thing. Uh, but before the election, Milani said they were going to a naval blockade. You know, they were going to block the Mediterranean stop boats arriving. Of course, what we're seeing is the reality, which is that you know, we had some of the right-wing papers last uh, December saying kind of stuff like, you know, interviewing people in Libya, like sub-Saharan African refugees coming through Libya, and they're interviewing the people who were supposedly saying, 
oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to come to Italy because that Milani, she's a bit tough, isn't she? Uh, what we're, of course, actually seeing is that the reasons why people migrate have nothing to do with that. And, of course, you know, uh, if we look at, for example, the recent earthquake in Turkey and Syria, uh, set hundreds of thousands of people on the move, and the current Italian government is finding that uh, it's actually uh, unable to deal with that. So it ramps up repressive measures and techniques. Uh, it launches this so-called war on people smugglers. Uh, there's a very interesting report in January about the people who've been uh, jailed for people smuggling in Italy, which found that the majority of them were just like ordinary migrants who'd been sort of put in charge of a dinghy at the last minute. So I think what we actually have is this uh, stepping up of the repression against migrants and also things like, of course, the fact that uh, the, the continuing reality that the children of migrants born in Italy have no right to citizenship. So what we see is an attempt to make it harder for migrants to live in Italy. We see spectacular acts of repression, but it's not actually uh, succeeding in its uh, declared aim. So, of course, I say that not as someone who says, well, she should sort of be more competent or more effectively pursuing her own agenda, but I think that's the uh, reality of what they're doing. I think that has caused a certain... I mean, just going by kind of social media and so on, there are certainly those on the far right who accuse her of betraying the party tradition, of not living up to her promises and so on. Uh, but I very much doubt that that will be able to form any sort of viable uh, political alternative uh, to her right. So she's a big fan of um, Sunak and Braverman's uh, policies, isn't she, as well? I mean, a very similar, in fact, uh, rhetoric around, mm -hmm. around that. That was David Broder and John Foote on Radicals and Conversation in-house. You can find out more about David's book, Mussolini's Grandchildren, on bookhousebristol.com, along with details about their other forthcoming events. If you enjoy the show, then please don't forget to share, rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. We will be back next month with another in-house episode in which Sarah Shin and Samantha Walton discuss the work and legacy of Ursula Le Guin. And of course, we'll have another episode of our regular panel show coming later in July as well. Finally, if you haven't already listened to our incredible Locating Legacy series, which has been produced in collaboration with the Stuart Hall Foundation, then now is definitely the time to do so. All six episodes are available to listen to right now through the Radicals and Conversation feed. And if you go to plutobooks.com forward slash locating legacies, you can get 40% off all the books in our dedicated reading list. Thanks again for listening and goodbye.